Chapter Twenty Seven, Part B of the Monastery, by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven, Part B. As he spoke, his lips grew livid, the blood forsook his cheek, and he was about to leave the apartment when the subprior recalled him and said in a solemn tone, "Edward, I have known you from infancy. I have done what lay within my reach to be of use to you." I say nothing of what you owe me as the representative of your spiritual superior. I say nothing of the duty from the vassal to the sub-prior. But Father Eustace expects from the pupil whom he has nurtured, he expects from Edward Glendinning, that he will not by any deed of sudden violence, however justified in his own mind by the provocation, break through the respect due to public justice, or that which he has an especial right to claim from him. Fear nothing, my reverend father, for, so in an hundred senses may I well term you, said the young man, fear not, fear not, I would say, that I will in anything diminish the respect I owe to the venerable community by whom we have so long been protected, far less that I will do aught which can be personally less than respectful to you. But the blood of my brother must not cry for vengeance in vain. Your reverence knows our border creed." "'Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will requite it,' answered the monk. "'The heathenish custom of deadly feud which prevails in this land, through which each man seeks vengeance at his own hand when the death of a friend or kinsman has chanced, hath already deluged our veils with the blood of Scottish men, spilled by the hands of countrymen and kindred. It were endless to count up the fatal results. On the eastern border the homes are at feud with the Swintons and Cockburns. In our middle marches, the Scots and Kerrs have spilled as much brave blood in domestic feud as might have fought a pitched field in England, could they have but forgiven and forgotten a casual re-encounter that placed their names in opposition to each other. On the west frontier the Johnstones are at war with the Maxwells, the Jardines with the Bells, drawing with them the flower of the country which should place their breasts as a bulwark against England into private and bloody warfare, of which it is the only end to waste and impair the forces of the country, already divided in itself. Do not, my dear son Edward, permit this bloody prejudice to master your mind. I cannot ask you to think of the crime supposed as if the blood spilled had been less dear to you. Alas, I know that is impossible. But I do require you, in proportion to your interest in the supposed sufferer, for as yet the whole is matter of supposition, to bear on your mind the evidence on which the guilt of the accused person must be tried. He hath spoken with me, and I confess his tale is so extraordinary that I should have, without a moment's hesitation, rejected it as incredible, but that an affair which chanced to myself in this very glen, more of that another time, Suffice it for the present to say that from what I have myself experienced, I deem it possible that, extraordinary as Sir Piercy Shafton's story may seem, I hold it not utterly impossible. "'Father,' said Edward Glendinning, when he saw that his preceptor paused, unwilling farther to explain upon what grounds he was inclined to give a certain degree of credit to Sir Piercy Shafton's story, while he admitted it as improbable. Father, to me you have been in every sense. You know that my hand grasped more readily to the book than to the sword, and that I lacked utterly the ready and bold spirit which distinguished—here his voice faltered, and he paused for a moment, 
and then went on with resolution and rapidity, I would say that I was unequal to Halbert in promptitude of heart and of hand. But Halbert is gone, and I stand his representative, and that of my father, his successor in all his rights. While he said this his eyes shot fire, and bound to assert and maintain them as he would have done. Therefore I am a changed man, increased in courage as in my rights and pretensions. And, reverend father, respectfully but plainly and firmly do I say, his blood, if it has been shed by this man, shall be atoned. Halbert shall not sleep neglected in his lonely grave, as if with him the spirit of my father had ceased for ever. His blood flows in my veins, and while his has been poured forth unrequited, mine will permit me no rest. My poverty and meanness of rank shall not avail the lordly murderer. My calm nature and peaceful studies shall not be his protection. Even the obligations, holy father, which I acknowledge to you, shall not be his protection. I wait with patience the judgment of the abbot and chapter for the slaughter of one of their most anciently descended vassals. If they do right to my brother's memory, it is well. But mark me, father, if they shall fail in rendering me that justice. I bear a heart and a hand which, though I love not such extremities, are capable of remedying such an error. He who takes up my brother's succession must avenge his death." The monk perceived with surprise that Edward, with his extreme diffidence, humility, and obedient assiduity, for such were his general characteristics, had still boiling in his veins the wild principles of those from whom he was descended, and by whom he was surrounded. His eyes sparkled, his frame was agitated, and the extremity of his desire for vengeance seemed to give a vehemence to his manner resembling the restlessness of joy. May God help us, said Father Eustace, for frail wretches as we are, we cannot help ourselves under sudden and strong temptation. Edward, I will rely on your word that you do nothing rashly. That will I not, said Edward. That, my better than father, I surely will not. But the blood of my brother, the tears of my mother, and, and, and of Mary Avenel, shall not be shed in vain. I will not deceive you, father. If this Piercy Shafton hath slain my brother, he dies, if the whole blood of the whole house of Piercy were in his veins." There was a deep and solemn determination in the utterance of Edward Glendinning expressive of a rooted resolution. The sub-prior sighed deeply, and for a moment yielded to circumstances, and urged the acquiescence of his pupil no farther. He commanded lights to be placed in the lower chamber, which for a time he paced in silence. A thousand ideas, and even differing principles, debated with each other in his bosom. He greatly doubted the English knight's account of the duel, and of what had followed it. Yet the extraordinary and supernatural circumstances which had befallen the sacristan and himself in that very glen prevented him from being absolutely incredulous on the score of the wonderful wound and recovery of Sir Piercy Shafton, and prevented him from at once condemning as impossible that which was altogether improbable. Then he was at a loss how to control the fraternal affections of Edward, with respect to whom he felt something like the keeper of a wild animal, a lion's whelp or a tiger's cub, which he has held under his command from infancy, but which, when grown to maturity, on some sudden provocation, displays his fangs and talons, erects his crest, resumes his savage nature, and bids defiance at once to his keeper and to all mankind. 
how to restrain and mitigate an ire which the universal example of the times rendered deadly and inveterate was sufficient cause of anxiety to father eustace but he had also to consider the situation of his community dishonored and degraded by submitting to suffer the slaughter of a vassal to pass unavenged a circumstance which of itself might in those times have afforded pretext for a revolt among their wavering adherents or on the other hand exposed the community to imminent danger should they proceed against a subject of england of high degree connected with the house of northumberland and other northern families of high rank who as they possessed the means could not be supposed to lack inclination to wreak upon the patrimony of st mary of kennaquare any violence which might be offered to their kinsmen in either case the sub-prior well knew that the ostensible cause of feud insurrection or incursion being once afforded the case would not be ruled either by reason or by evidence and he groaned in spirit when upon counting up the chances which arose in this ambiguous dilemma he found he had only a choice of difficulties he was a monk but he felt also as a man indignant at the supposed slaughter of young glendinning by one skilful in all the practice of arms in which the vassal of the monastery was most likely to be deficient and to aid the resentment which he felt for the loss of a youth whom he had known from infancy came in full force the sense of dishonour arising to his community from passing over so gross an insult unavenged then the light in which it might be viewed by those who at present presided in the stormy court of scotland attached as they were to the reformation and allied by common faith and common interest with queen elizabeth was a formidable subject of apprehension the sub-prior well knew how they lusted after the revenues of the church to express it in the ordinary phrase of the religious of the time and how readily they would grasp at such a pretext for encroaching on those of st mary's as would be afforded by the suffering to pass unpunished the death of a native scottishman by a catholic englishman a rebel to queen elizabeth on the other hand to deliver up to england or which was nearly the same thing the scottish administration an english knight leagued with the piercy by kindred and political intrigue a faithful follower of the catholic church who had fled to the halidome for protection was in the estimation of the sub-prior an act most unworthy in itself and meriting the malediction of heaven besides being moreover fraught with great temporal risk if the government of scotland was now almost entirely in the hands of the protestant party the queen was still a catholic and there was no knowing when amid the sudden changes which agitated that tumultuous country she might find herself at the head of her own affairs and able to protect those of her own faith then if the court of england and its queen were zealously protestant the northern counties whose friendship or enmity were of most consequence in the first instance to the community of st mary's contained many catholics the heads of whom were able and must be supposed willing to avenge any injury suffered by sir piercy shafton on either side the sub-prior thinking according to his sense of duty most anxiously for the safety and welfare of his monastery saw the greatest risk of damage blame inroad and confiscation the only course on which he could determine was to stand by the helm like a resolute pilot watch every contingence, do his best to weather each reef and shoal, and commit the rest to heaven and his patroness. As he left the apartment, the knight called after him, beseeching he would order his trunk-mails to be sent into his apartment, 
understanding he was to be guarded there for the night, as he wished to make some alteration in his apparel. Footnote. Sir Piercy Shafton's extreme love of dress was an attribute of the coxcombs of this period. The display made by their forefathers was in the numbers of their retinue, but as the actual influence of the nobility began to be restrained both in France and England by the increasing power of the crown, the indulgence of vanity in personal display became more inordinate. There are many allusions to this change of custom in Shakespeare and other dramatic writers where the reader may find mention of bonds entered into for gay apparel against the triumph day. Johnson informs us that for the first entrance of a gallant, twere good you turned four or five hundred acres of your best land into two or three trunks of apparel. Every man out of his humor. In the memory of the Somerville family a curious instance occurs of this fashionable species of extravagance. In the year 1537, when James V brought over his short-lived bride from France, the Lord Somerville of the day was so profuse in the expense of his apparel that the money which he borrowed on the occasion was compensated by a perpetual annuity of threescore pounds Scottish, payable out of the barony of Carnworth till doomsday, which was assigned by the creditor to St. Magdalen's Chapel. By this deep expense the Lord Somerville had rendered to himself so glorious in apparel, that the king, who saw so brave a gallant enter the gate of Holyrood, followed by only two pages, called upon several of the courtiers to ascertain who it could be who was so richly dressed and so slightly attended. And he was not recognized until he entered the presence chamber. "'You are very brave, my lord,' said the king, as he received his homage. "'But where are all your men and attendants?' The Lord Somerville readily answered, "'If it please your majesty, here they are,' pointing to the lace that was on his own and his page's clothes. Whereat the king laughed heartily, and having surveyed the finery more nearly, bade him have away with it all, and let him have his stout band of spears again. There was a scene in Johnson's Every Man Out of His Humour, Act Four, Scene Six, in which a euphuist of the time gives an account of the effects of a duel on the clothes of himself and his opponent and never departs a syllable from the catalogue of his wardrobe. We shall insert it in evidence that the foppery of our ancestors was not inferior to that of our own time. Fastidious. Good faith, senor. Now you speak of a quarrel, I'll acquaint you with a difference that happened between a gallant and myself, Sir Pontavolo. You know him if I should name him, senor Lucolento. Pontavolo. Lucolento, what inauspicious chance interposed itself to your two lives? Fastidious, faith, sir, the same that sundered Agamemnon, and great Thetis's son, but let the cause escape, sir. He sent me a challenge, mixed with some few braves, which I restored, and in fine we met. Now indeed, sir, I must tell you, he did offer at first very desperately, but without judgment. For look you, sir, I cast myself into this figure. Now he came violently on, and withal advancing his rapier to strike, I thought to have took his arm, for he had left his body to my election, and I was sure he could not recover his guard. Sir, I missed my purpose in his arm, rashed his doublet sleeves, ran him close by the left cheek and through his hair. He again light me here. 
I had on a gold cable hat-band, then new come up, about a Murray French hat I had. Cuts my hat-band, and yet it was massy goldsmith's work, cuts my brim, which by good fortune being thick embroidered with gold twist and spangles, disappointed the force of the blow. Nevertheless it grazed on my shoulder, takes me away six pearls of an Italian cutwork band I wore, cost me three pounds in the exchange but three days before. Puntervolo, this was a strange encounter. Fastidious. Nay, you shall hear, sir. With this we both fell out and breathed. Now upon the second sign of his assault I betook me to my former manner of defence. He on the other side abandoned his body to the same danger as before, and follows me still with blows. But I, being loath to take the deadly advantage that lay before me of his left side, made a kind of stramazon, ran him up to the hilt, through the doublet, through the shirt, and yet missed the skin. He, making a reverse blow, falls upon my embossed girdle. I had thrown off the hangers a little before, strikes off a skirt of a thick-laced satin doublet I had, lined with four taffetas, cuts off two panes embroidered with pearl, rends through the drawings out of tissue, enters the linings, and spicks the flesh. Car. I wonder he speaks not of his wrought shirt. Fastidious. Here, in the opinion of mutual damage, we paused. But ere I proceed, I must tell you, Signor, that in the last encounter, not having leisure to put off my silver spurs, one of the rowels catched hold of the ruffles of my boot, and being Spanish leather and subject to tear, overthrows me, rends me two pair of silk stockings that I put on, being somewhat of a raw morning, a peach colour and another and strikes me some half-inch deep into the side of the calf. He, seeing the blood come, presently takes horse and away, I having bound up my wound with a piece of my wrought shirt. Car. Oh, comes it in there! Fastidious! Ride after him, and lighting at the court-gate both together, embraced and marched hand in hand up to the presence. Was not this business well carried? Macy. Well, yes and by this we can guess what apparel the gentleman wore. Puntervolo. For valour, it was a designment begun with much resolution, maintained with as much prowess, and ended with more humanity. End footnote. Ay, ay, said the monk, muttering as he went up the winding stair, carry him his trumpery with all dispatch. Alas, that man with so many noble objects of pursuit will amuse himself like a jackanape with a laced jerkin and a cap and bells. I must now to the melancholy work of consoling that which is well-nigh inconsolable, a mother weeping for her first-born. Advancing, after a gentle knock, into the apartment of the women, he found that Mary Avenel had retired to bed, extremely indisposed, and that Dame Glendinning and Tib were indulging their sorrows by the side of a decaying fire, and by the light of a small iron lamp, or cruise, as it was termed. Poor Elspeth's apron was thrown over her head, and bitterly did she sob and weep for her beautiful, her brave, the very image of her dear Simon Glendinning, the stay of her widowhood, and the support of her old age. The faithful Tib echoed her complaints, and more violently clamorous made deep promises of revenge on Sir Piercy Shafton. If there were a man left in the South who could draw a winger, or a woman that could throw a rape, the presence of the sub-prior imposed silence on these clamours. 
he sate down by the unfortunate mother and essayed by such topics as his religion and reason suggested to interpret the current of dame glendinning's feeling but the attempt was in vain she listened indeed with some little interest while he pledged his word and his influence with the abbot that the family which had lost their eldest born by means of a guest received at his command should experience particular protection at the hands of the community and that the fief which belonged to simon glendinning should with extended bounds and added privileges be conferred on edward but it was only for a very brief space that the mother's sobs were apparently softer and her grief more mild she soon blamed herself for casting a moment's thought upon world's gear while poor halbert was lying stretched in his bloody shirt the sub-prior was not more fortunate when he promised that halbert's body should be removed to hallowed ground and his soul secured by the prayers of the church in his behalf grief would have its natural course and the voice of the comforter was wasted in vain end of chapter 27 part b